Chapter 13 begins with these words, and it came to pass after this. This, of course, relates to the previous chapter, and back in chapter 12, verse number 10, is the clue that unlocks the events of chapter 13. You know that chapter 12 gives the account of Nathan coming to David with the warning or with the rebuke that he has committed great sin in taking Bathsheba and in murdering Uriah. And in verse number 10 it says this, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, and before the son. This is an important section of Scripture. Chapter 13 gives us help in understanding the ways of God, in forgiving the sinner, while the sin has ongoing consequences for God's purpose. We sometimes speak of chastisement, of God being pleased to chasten those he loves. And sometimes we think of that in the way that God would use chastisement to bring someone to see their sin. And so perhaps a believer falls into sin and God chastens them that they would see their sin and then become and then turn to repentance. Indeed, that is sometimes the reason God acts in chastisement. However, Before chapter 13 comes, David has already repented and been forgiven. We know from verse 13 of chapter 12 that Nathan says to David, The Lord hath also put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. And so the chastisement that follows is not to bring David to a realization of his sin and to bring him to repentance. He's got there already. The word of God was enough to bring him to that realization. And yet chapter 13 begins to prove that verse number 10 of chapter 12 has not been overturned. You see, you might read chapter 12 and think to yourself, well, there are warnings in chapter 12 as to the sword in the house, but then David repents, and there is is forgiveness in chapter 12, verse 13. Perhaps the punishments warned in chapter 12 will not come to pass, and yet they do. They do come. And so it may help us to think of chastisement as God's discipline without narrowing down the reasons for it. God does many things in one thing, works in many ways as He works His ways in our lives. Now, there are some things to remember here. David is a unique person. As the king of Israel, we are told in verse number 14 of chapter 12, that his sin gave occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So there is some of this that should be seen as being peculiar to David. Now, I'm cautious here. If I suggest to you this is peculiar to David, you might think to yourself, well, I can sin and none of this would ever happen to me. The devil could use such logic in your mind. And so this portion does give us a profound warning against carelessly falling into sin. But my concern also is that you would presume that chapter 12 and 13 of 2 Samuel 
indicates that your personal afflictions must be due to some particular sin. Troubles come in our lives, and you may read these chapters and presume to yourself, well, clearly I must have done something, and I'm facing the ongoing consequences. And some believers live. They live in that trauma. And they live in that trauma because they can't actually identify the thing that they must have done to lead to such consequences. But yet some also can identify that sin. And they can see the sin. But even that does not mean that the afflictions they face are inevitably due to some particular sin. The Bible's very clear that afflictions come for various reasons. You have sinned, this man or his parents, well, neither. And so we see there are times in the Word of God when there are afflictions come upon people not as a direct result of personal sin. And so God has many ways that He deals with us, and it's not always the case that our afflictions come because of personal sin. But this is clear. We're told exactly the reason whereby David suffers this situation. We're told, verse number 10 again, because thou hast despised me. David's guilty of despising the Lord. We know this chapter. We're given the insight and the instruction. You see, whatever we might think of David being unique, we do understand that chastening is a privilege given to all of God's sons. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all our partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. It's part of our sonship to be chastened of God. And that is a wonderful blessing and a privilege, no matter how painful that may be. Now, we are told in David's case the reason for the trouble. He despised the Lord, despised the Lord's word. His sin is indeed aggravated and grotesque. It is awful sin. Think of the blessings he enjoyed. This man was greatly blessed. Think of the light he had received. Think of how he understood the Lord. Think of the Psalms he wrote even in his early life. Think of the role he occupied. The responsibility of king of all Israel. But for his own purposes, God will deal with David for this sin the rest of his days. The nature of David's sin is such that God has determined that he will face a consequence of that sin for the remainder of his life on this earth. Again, let's be clear. God dealing with David in this regard is not God atoning. We're not using David's suffering to atone for his sin. Again, that's the mindset of some Christians. If I suffer greatly, I'll atone for my sins. This is not atoning suffering. This is not in some way whereby God is punishing David to make amends for his wickedness. That's not the case. Rather, this is gracious chastisement. This is David knowing the loving kindness of God. Even in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, even then, God is showing his loving kindness towards David. It is a mystery. But it's the facts. We can't guess as to all that God is doing. But we can be certain that David will not sin carelessly again. He does sin again. We'll get there. He's not immune from future sins. But he will be watchful. 
He will always have in his mind the consequence of his sin. And will always guard his heart. He will always marvel at God's grace. Psalm 32 will ring true. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not his iniquity. David will live his life knowing he deserves nothing but God's wrath and condemnation. And knowing that, he will sing the praises of God's loving kindness. But beyond David, God is dealing with David that the people will be warned about their sin. Warned about sinning with impunity. Warned about such sins in their lives. God is making the point here that David sinned in secret, but he's manifest this sin openly to demonstrate that God does not ignore the dishonoring of his name. Verse 12 of chapter 12, For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And chapter 13 is only beginning. There's more to come regarding God manifesting David's iniquity. So I suppose chapter 13 is given to us to tell us and remind us that God may chasten his children even though he has forgiven them. The chastening is not to lead to repentance. It's not to atone for sins in some way, but it may be to publicly affirm God's honor and lead the soul in holiness. These are the mysteries of God's ways. He loves sons and he chastens those sons And we ought to have a broad understanding of what that means in the Bible and in our own lives. You see, keeping that in mind, and remembering that chapter 13 primarily reveals those truths, we come to face the horrors of these events, trouble and tragedy in the family. The Bible does not soft-pedal the tragedy of sin. These accounts serve as a warning a grotesque display of man's sinful nature. And we are given this account to learn. This account teaches many things, ethics regarding conduct, principles to govern our lives and our thinking regarding living in this fallen world. And as we examine the troubles and the tragedy here, we should seek to ask ourselves before God, what would you have me to learn? What can I glean, discern from this terrible tragic situation. Well, first of all, let's think a little bit about the principles of morality. The principles of morality. Now here, of course, I'm thinking about the intimate relations between a man and a woman. You will appreciate I've got to do this with a degree of discretion. I trust discernment. I realize the nature of our audience and the congregation here, but yet the Bible is not silent on this matter. And we are given these accounts, both positive and negative examples, that we would learn from these things. And so let me seek to try to positively present some principles that come from the Word of God in this regard. Things that arise from this most horrific of stories. The first thing I would tell you, and here I want to really address the the young people here. Not just the young, but primarily the young. You can't escape, folks. Small congregation, I can see you all, including you guys at the back. Uh, You're all, I can see you all. In your relationships, boy-girl relationships, let me encourage you to pursue relationship. What you see here in Amnon is not love. It is what we may term infatuation. And infatuation and lust can easily be confused for love. 
Verse 1 says, Amnon, the son of David, loved her. The term is used. It describes how he was explaining it himself. But we know that from verse number 4. And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar. This is not love. Amnon is confused. He has become infatuated with this woman. He has seen her fairness. David had a fair, or the son of David, Absalom, had a fair sister. His name was Tamar. And Amnon is infatuated with this woman. Merriam Webster Dictionary defines infatuation as this a feeling of foolish or obsessively strong love for, admiration for, or interest in someone or something. Strong and unreasoning attachment. Now you often see, you often see infatuation in the young. They become infatuated. Prior to marriage, they are pursuing marriage perhaps and pursuing relationships and they can become obsessed with an object of their affection. We sometimes may even joke about young people, they are lovesick. They lose their appetite. Isn't that what's happening here? He's lean. He's weak. He's, that's this, this situation that uh, Jonabab understands. Verse 4, why art thou being the king's son lean from day to day? He, he's, he's lost his appetite. He's completely obsessed with this situation, this fantasy he has in his mind. You see it in the young people. You see it in the foolish, contemplating an extramarital affair. I, I couldn't get her out of my mind. I love her and you can't help who you love. You see, this is not biblical love. Amnon is lovesick, but it's not love in the way love ought to be expressed in the Scriptures. Of course, we know he doesn't love her. Verse 15 makes that clear. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. He gets the object of his affection, and he realizes what it's all for, and hates her. The greater hatred than the love for which he loved her. You see... This cannot be love. Because Amnon had no opportunity to get to know the object of his affection. That's the problem in verse number 2. This is, this is the, the difficulty he has. Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. He, he doesn't know her. Now, please understand, this is not a family dynamic like you might have in your home. Or you live under the same roof and you interact in this regard. These are several homes all under the royal palaces, but there are several homes with the units living in various homes. We know David has, has several wives at this time. And so it seems to be the case that there was some separation between one home and another home, and Amnon's concern is, how can I get this woman? I have no access to her. I never see her. And so Jonadab comes along with this duplicitous, subtle plan. You see, leaving aside the complex sin here, Again, this is not biblical love. Biblical love is a joining of the hearts in companionship. Remember what we saw in our studies in marriage in Malachi chapter 2 in our Bible studies? Marriage is a covenant of companionship. And it is out of that companionship that intimacy is then expressed. A covenant of companionship leading to intimacy. And when you get that order wrong or you leave out part of that order then sin enters the situation. You see, intimacy without companionship is not God's will. And covenantally, 
There must not be intimacy without that covenant. And so the place for men and women to enjoy intimacy is not in this form. It is in the context of a covenant of companionship. And so young people, please heed this. Don't set your goals too low when it comes to these things. Set your goals high regarding what you pursue in a God-honoring biblical marriage. First, pursue companionship. Then, seek to engage in covenant relationship and marriage. And from that, then, comes the intimacy. That is God's purpose. That is God's order of things. And so, in your courtship or dating, call it what you may, pursue relationships. Get to know the other person in the group setting. Hear their opinions. Listen to their attitudes. Discern their character. Do all of that without at any time seeking to pursue intimacy. The problem with our present day and age is we've got the order all the wrong way round. And the Amnon spirit dominates. It dominates on social media and it dominates even in the context of the church at times. How quickly can we get to intimacy? without taking the time to pursue proper companionship and relationship. And so meet in settings that promote conversation and nothing else. Meet in that context where you can get to know each other and learn from each other regarding your convictions and the things concerning the Lord in your heart. Even in marriage. In marriage it is vital to understand that if we separate companionship and intimacy... There'll be a breakdown in the relationship. If we seek to have intimacy with a companionship, there's a problem there. God's ordering is very, very clear. Companionship, covenant, intimacy. This is an aberration of God's will. And we read it and our stomachs turn and ought to turn. As we see a man's violence against a woman. This is not God's way. So the second thing then in light of this is to practice selflessness. Amnon's scheme is all about getting what he wants. It's all about self-gratification. Jonadab has a plan to help Amnon get what he wants. Now I'm not going through all the details of that plan. It involves a conspiracy. Again, I probably should say one thing. You see the parallels between chapter 13 and David's sin with Bathsheba. There are direct correlations. Conspiracy, scheming, plans and plots. All of these things. And we see it here being visited upon David's house. So Jonabah has a scheme and the scheme is successful. And Amnon, he pursues his own desires without having any consideration to the impact this might have on Tamar. We hate this. We ought to hate this. And yet sometimes we're not so good at seeing our own hearts in the reflection of God's murder. This is the extreme, if you like. This is love expressed in ungodly fashion in the extreme form. It's not godly love. It's not biblical love. But we must understand that love in marriage is love that is selfless. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, it's a broad chapter. It speaks of love in the church. It speaks of love in charity terms. 
Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. But you get to verse number 5. Charity seeketh not her own. And that must always be the case. You see, sometimes in courtship, an ungodly man will say to a lady, if you love me, you do this for me. Manipulation, using the language of love to manipulate, but it's self-gratification. And Amnon is guilty of such. He abuses Tamar. He abuses her kind spirit towards him. She's tended to his needs. And by the way, to my mind, she is blameless here. Some suggest she should have seen what was coming. Man, she's blameless here. She's seeking to tender to a brother she presumed was sick. She meets his needs and she objects strongly when he puts the claim to her. Verse 11, come lie with me, my sister. I'll come more to that later on. See, love seeks not her own. Again, passing word of application to young people. If you find yourself becoming infatuated with a person who are self-centered and self-focused, take several steps back, turn around and run. If you find yourself attracted to someone who is so self-centered that all they talk about is themselves and what they do, there are huge warning signs for your marriage. They will not suddenly change and become caring when they're married. They're obsessed with themselves and they'll always be obsessed with themselves. Love is kind. Seek out a kind spouse. Thirdly, in these principles regarding morality, you must be careful to honor God and man. Tamar has great insight here. There's an important clause in verse number 12 that really stands out and illustrates her wisdom and her understanding. She says, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not die this folly. She's drawing attention to the fact that they are in a holy nation. And Amnon's behavior is like the behavior of the heathens. Israel, a nation under God's law. A nation set apart in holiness. Fornication marked the worship of Baal. All manner of sexual immorality marked the wickedness of the nations around Israel. Tamar knows that. There's a striking parallel here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Please turn across to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse number 5. Again, we're going to go back and forward here, but it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5. Again, the context is dealing with the matter of abstaining from fornication. And Paul says, Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. He's writing to the church and saying, You're not to be like the ungodly around you, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. And look what it says down in verse number 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God. What was said about David in his sin with Bathsheba? He despised God in his sin of fornication. 
and adultery. He's despising God. And Paul is drawing on that concept and he's saying to the church in Thessalonica, this is the will of God. Abstain from fornication and don't live like the ungodly. It's a tragedy. The church has been so polluted with sexual immorality in this present age. We are to be distinct and different and not to be ashamed for it. We are to be a holy nation set apart for God. And so young people and those in marriages, please seek out relationships that honor God. Live relationships that honor the Lord. What does the Lord think? But also when you honor God, honor man. You see, go back to 2 Samuel 13. Tamar says, Nay, my brother, do not force me. Now, we know what that means. Verse 14, he was stronger than her. But the root idea of that word force is to humiliate, to violate. It is to act in a way that does not honor her. Respect is vital in a loving relationship. Selfless respect that honors God and man. And so as Tamar contemplates this sin, she reckons with uh, Amnon and says, Do not this folly, for thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. You see, the sin involved here is the sin of incest and forcing compelled incest. And we might see the term folly and presume it's just a little bit of foolishness. People do foolish things. The word folly used here in our King James Version is a word that is very significant and speaks of gross moral iniquity. The word fool that's used there in verse 13 is Nabal. You'll know that as a fool. Folly involved here. But to see an illustration of this word, please turn to Isaiah chapter 32. For the word is used there. It's not translated with the word fool. But again, in the English translation, they're seeking to draw the parallel. But as Isaiah chapter 32 in the verse number 6. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord. It's the word vile. The foolish person, the fool, will speak villainy. In other words, fools do folly. Wicked people do wicked things. Sinners sin. And so what you're seeing here is, Tamar is pleading for her, for her dignity. She's pleading for her life. Now, whilst I say she is blameless, there is certainly the issue regarding her words in verse number 13 that David would not hold, withhold her from Amnon. Again, there's various views there. It may well be the case that she's simply pleading for time. Or tragically, it may be the case that she doesn't think David would be compromised in that regard. I don't know. But I suspect she's pleading for time. But what is clear in those verses 12 and 13 is that we see a woman who understands that what's happening around her is sin against God. And so in relationships, honor God and man. And honor man by honoring God, by obeying God. Not by engaging in all manner of sinful folly. So there are directions here, aren't there? Principles of morality. And we find ourselves greatly offended by this sin.
have three more things to point out, and they'll be very brief. Secondly, we do see in this portion, in trouble and tragedy in the family, we see problems in parenting. There is trouble here in David's family. And we ask the question, well, why is there trouble? Well, we know the reason that God is going to deal with David. We know we've seen that in the introduction tonight. Now, here again, we've got to be careful. Sin in the family does not always mean there's been bad parenting. There are always exceptions. Good parents can face a tragedy of godless children. And godly young people can come out of godless homes. There are exceptions, and as always there are. And yet there are principles in God's word of good parenting. And God is a God who is pleased to use means. In other words, we are duty-bound to seek to parent faithfully before God. We leave the outcome to God. But we are bound before God to do our utmost to parent our children in the ways of God, as we see revealed in the Scriptures. And there are hints that David is suspect in this area. He allows Amnon's scheme to go forward without question. Maybe it's understandable. Maybe he thought it was just genuine. But there are certainly questions to ask regarding the demand for a particular sister to come in a particular fashion. Certainly, a wise father would be wondering, what's really going on here? This doesn't seem to fit. He also tragically allows Amnon to go unpunished. Verse 21, but when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. End off. This is not excusable. Although some suggest the lack of witnesses meant he couldn't execute the sentence of the law. Some give David a Bible there. I don't think it's the case. He knows for a fact these things have happened. And no one's denying it. Two years passed. And I wonder, has he presumed in verse number 23 that all has been forgotten? There's an interesting textual feature here. Verse number 21 has a longer ending in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The words are added, But he would not grieve the soul of Abnon his son, for he loved him because he was his firstborn. Now that's not in our Hebrew Bibles. And so it may well be added in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as some sort of commentary. But it gives the idea that I think is the sense of the text, that David does not punish Amnon because... He is blind to his son's offenses and would not grieve his son because he loves his firstborn. That is not acceptable. He also allows Absalom to execute his scheme without suspicion. He himself will not go. Now the sheep shears, what's all involved there? It's some sort of festival time in connection with sheep shearing. It's a cultural thing. You get similar things back home, by the way. Uh, I'm not sure, but here. And they all gather. There's a feast and there's food and there's all manner of things as the sheep are sheared for the season. But you have here David saying, well, I'm not going to go. But then Absalom presses him, let my brother go. David says, why should he go? And yet he relents all the same. Now we know we have a certain testament regarding David and Absalom. Turn across a few pages to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse number 6. 1 Kings 1, verse number 6. And it says, 
And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? Okay, so here we see a, a statement whereby we see that the king is slow to discipline, slow to rebuke, slow to bring judgment against his children and to challenge their actions. And so I know it's a picture, it's a big picture of the whole family of Abnam and Absalom and Ajanijah, all of these sons, and they all are bringing together the same picture. A picture of a naive father, perhaps, assuming the best and lacking discipline. Parents, your children are born in sin. They have hearts full of iniquity. And you may presume that they would never do this or never do that. Do not be blind to the possibility of great sin in your children's hearts coming out in their lives. Like Eli of old, Eli was said to honor his sons before God. We've got to make sure that God comes first in our families and that we do what is right despite how we may feel about our offspring. So there are problems in parenting here. We also see very quickly the power of bitterness. Is it fair to say Absalom is consumed with bitterness? Can it be said of him, like Hebrews chapter 12, that he should fear the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up troubled him, whereby he's defiled? Is that the case here in Absalom? Well, certainly he's consumed with revenge. Despite the word of God, Deuteronomy 32, to me belong a vengeance. Absalom has a plan, and that plan we know from later on in the chapter, verse number 32, that plan goes from the day that he forced Tamar, his sister. And so for two years, Absalom has been scheming how he can end the life of Amnon, his brother. We read this and we say, well, Absalom surely had a right to be angry. His sister was violated, humiliated, and abused. Righteous anger is a proper response to wickedness. And righteous anger in response to wickedness builds up in the person when justice is not executed. What should have happened doesn't happen. David does not deal with it in justice. And then I believe bitterness arises. There's planning and plotting leading to murder. And he appoints his servants to kill Abnon at this festival feast. All I want to say right now is to warn you that bitterness can then lead to further iniquitous actions. Absalom is guilty of murder here. Why is he acts in righteous anger? He is guilty of further sin. And his bitterness consumes him and causes further chaos in the home. See, when you are wronged, when someone sins against you, you ought to seek proper justice in the community, in society, in the courts, or perhaps in the church, if that's the case. You ought to seek proper justice before God. But if you find that justice does not come, then we're told in Romans 12 to leave with the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so I don't know if this applies to some of you here tonight. But warn, be warned about the power of bitterness in your soul. But finally, please note the pain of suffering. 
in many of the commentators here and many of the writings of this chapter, Tamar is almost a neglected figure. Barely commented on, little said, plenty said about Jonadab and Amnon and Absalom. But from Tamar's perspective, this is a chapter of absolute tragedy. Verse number 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went and went on crying. She has been terribly abused. And the end of the story for her in verse number 20 is this. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. The word desolate means to be laid waste. The sins of others has made her life a misery. And there's nothing she can do about it. A few moments in her life has altered the course of her life forever. And she is powerless to change it. Some people have suffered lifelong consequences from the sins of others. If you are guilty of such a sin, may God strike your heart with conviction tonight and make sure you seek refuge in Christ Jesus. The Amnons of this world are not beyond God's wonderful grace of forgiveness. As scandalous that may seem to us, such can know the mercy of God to the grace of God's glory. But if you're someone and your life has suffered the consequence from the sins of others and you know you can do nothing about it, you must seek refuge in the mercy of God. We read this chapter and we find ourselves crying out within ourselves, How dreadful is sin. May Messiah come and make all things new. There are many stories in this world today, just like Amnon and Tamar. This world is broken by the fall. Men are guilty of some of the most horrific sins. And the response of the child of God is to look to Calvary and to see that in Calvary, Christ has achieved the victory over the devil and over death itself. And realize that this world is groaning under the weight of sin. But redemption is coming. There's a new heavens and new earth where these things will not take place. But the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And as you read this story, And as you read your newspapers, may you long within your hearts, even so, come Lord Jesus. We hate this sort of thing. And we ought to hate this sort of thing. This sort of thing is not God's will for humanity. But there's coming a day when all things will be made right. And may God help us to long for that day. Amen. Let's close in prayer again. Seeking God's face to understand and apply this. Eternal God, take your word. You know the necessity of your word in each and every individual. We pray it would indeed be a word in season. We ask, O God, that even as we would leave this place, may our heart's desire go out to Christ Jesus. He loves us perfectly. 
His love is always kind. His love is selfless. He loves us as one who came to minister to us. We thank you for the tenderness and the compassion of Christ Jesus. And though men do violent and wicked deeds, Christ does not snuff out the smoking flax. He doesn't crush the bruised reed. Thank you for the kindness of Christ Jesus. And though some would live in the context of abuse and hostility, we praise you, O Lord, for a groom, Christ Jesus. He is that perfect groom who does all things well. O Lord, we pray for the grace that we need to understand and discern your word. We pray for our young people. Guard them from every sin. Help them to pursue righteousness. To do those things that are pleasing in your sight. We ask and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.